In the summer of 1979, a man bearing only a pseudonym for a name wandered into the Elberton Granite Finishing Company in Elberton, Georgia. The man introduced himself to employee Joe Finley as Robert C. Christian. This pseudonym, R.C. Christian, would, over time, become the center of massive amounts of speculation, mystery, and sinister conspiracy. That fateful summer day, Mr. Christian told Mr. Finley that the Granite Company would be commissioned to excavate and finish a monument meant to stand as a message for future generations. It was to be the company's greatest undertaking in its history. When asked why he came to Elbert County, Mr. Christian only stated that the granite in the county was of the finest quality and that he came as the representative of a group of loyal Americans and believers in God. What would follow was a series of mysterious and downright abnormal experiences. This mysterious stranger would hire a private plane to survey the surrounding area for a place to erect this monument that no one asked for. He would walk into the Granite City Bank and speak with its president, Mr. Wyatt Martin, in order to finance the project. Despite wanting to keep his identity hidden, Mr. Christian was required to reveal his identity to Mr. Martin and Mr. Finley to prove he could afford this expensive and arduous undertaking. Mr. Christian made the decision to divulge his identity to the pair, but only once they solemnly vowed to never utter his or his group's identity, taking that information to their graves. And that is exactly what they did. To this day, the true identity of Mr. Christian remains unknown, but his actions during his short time in Elberton would ripple through the next several decades in a whirlwind of apocalyptic and esoteric speculations. The monument Mr. Christian commissioned wouldn't up aptly named the Georgia Guidestones, Covered in eight languages, including English, Latin, and cuneiform, the Guidestones lay out guidelines for an ideal relationship between man and nature. Moreover, the ten instructions do lay out some fairly sensible ideals, like protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts, or avoid petty laws and useless officials. On the surface, those things make sense. Justice is essential to a free society, and who likes nonsensical laws and bureaucrats? But those lines aren't what get the minds of those who've read the inscriptions pinging with apprehension. Guidelines like maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature, balance personal rights with social duties, and unite humanity with a living new language certainly beg a lot of questions. Questions underpinned with potentially eugenic and genocidal implications. The residents around the Guidestones first met the monument with curiosity, but also repulsion. Furthermore, their presence imbued a sense of dark mysticism, with a local sandblaster stating that during his work on the monument, he felt an odd sense of apprehension and would occasionally hear disembodied voices and otherworldly music. Overall, despite their supposed intention of being an answer to future generations, the Guidestones have only engendered questions and, in some, fear. What did its cryptic guidelines mean? What are its ties to some of history's most secret societies? And why, in July of 2022, did someone or some people blow it up, leaving it to be officially demolished by a bulldozer the next day, with no arrests made in the subsequent domestic terrorism investigation? Tonight, we're going to dive in and discuss our opinion and some of the evidence and what it may mean. But remember, not everything that hides in the shadows is willing to be discovered. What's going on, Zach? Nothing much. Uh, just listening to what you were saying there about the Georgia Guidestones and the whole time I've, my mind's going like a, a million places a second thinking of a whole different, uh, different ideas and, uh, conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of just kind of weird stuff that kind of just correlate and relate. 
Absolutely. And uh, welcome everybody back to I Came With Fire podcast. Uh, as, yes. as you heard, tonight's going to be on the Georgia Guidestones. I know that this one is uh, a subject that a lot of people find interesting. And I've also found out just through some of the conversations I've had with people around me that not a lot of people know about them. Uh, but you can find a good amount of people who do. But you, you have to kind of be in that mindset. You know what I mean? To like know Yeah, for sure. Them. Honestly, I think a lot of people first heard about the Georgia Guidestones when they did get blown up in July last yeah. year. And uh, I know that, you know, that like, what is that? What's the Georgia Guidestones, you know? And then I, I even remember when they got blown up, people were talking about that. You remember that uh, shiny monolith that they found in the Utah desert during uh, 2020? Yes. Yeah. And, yes. Um, but uh, they were like, is that is that what that is? It's like, no, no, it isn't. You know what I mean? But uh, no, man, it's it's honestly to me one of the most interesting things, um, especially when you start digging into some of its ties, like I said, to some secret societies and not just mm -hmm. newer secret societies, secret societies that have been around for hundreds of years. And uh, mm -hmm. those, those societies having uh, tenants uh, in them that date back all the way to ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon. Um, so it's when you kind of think about just things that last through history and the sort of oral traditions and stuff like that, they get passed down. It's kind of amazing that in today's society, that some of those things that have that underpin the old world still exist today and are talked about and discussed and uh, kind of guide other people's lives. You know what I mean? So, but I'm yeah, ready to have this sure. conversation, man. This is a, this is a, an extremely interesting topic to me and um, I'm ready. Yeah, uh, you, you said that like a lot of people didn't know about it until they got destroyed. Um, I knew of them, and I knew of like the ten things on them, but I, that's all I knew until they actually were destroyed. Once they were destroyed, I kind of looked more into them, and I was like, this is really strange. So uh, when you kind of brought up like this talk about the Georgia Guidestones, I was like, yes! And I had to like go and like re refine some stuff and things that were kind of like uh in my mind in some like special corridor back in there um but no it was uh it was fun uh re-looking up a bunch of stuff and it, it just it just made me more interested in it the more i read about it so yeah i i knew what they were and kind of the implications that people have painted them with uh when it got mm -hmm. blown up and to me I, I definitely my initial reaction was what a lot of people's initial reaction was was like oh shit you know this this means more than what the news is saying it means. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then of course, you know, the next day it got knocked over and then, you know, they had this mysterious car that drove by and, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. So to me, there's just like classic signs of cover up and no one official cares like you think they should. And then also, you know, of course they'd knock over something that's halfway blown up and weighs as much and is as large as this massive granite monument, you know? So mm -hmm. logical with just one, With just one random bulldozer. And they, they tore it down, like, in the middle of the night. Like, it wasn't, like, during the day or anything. They just kind of showed up, tore it down, and it was gone. I was like, what the heck? I'm actually pretty sure they did knock it down during the day. It was? Yeah, they just didn't maybe see I'm, anything to anybody. Oh, maybe I'm just getting confused. There wasn't, like, with the videos... Because it, it blew up at night, right? It blew up at night, yeah. Okay, so, there, so I'm probably just confusing the videos. Yeah, there wasn't like an official, like, hey, 
uh, you know, due to what happened, we're going to knock these down. Um, right. It's just like a bulldozer rolled up to the monument and just started knocking him down. It knocked down like the center pillar um, at first, and then that kind of took down some of the rest of it. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. And it's in, and I'll just say this right off the bat, that those guidestones are in the middle of a large field. And it's like kind of one of those things where it's like, it's not like it's in the middle of a square or a courtyard where a bunch of people are walking around it all day, Mm -hmm. where it really could run the risk of falling onto somebody, you know, and obviously it's, it was a public space. The plot of land originally purchased by Mr. Christian was mm-hmm. deeded eventually mm-hmm. over to Elbert County and was a public space. And so yep. could somebody have walked up on it, especially after it made the news and it fallen on them? Absolutely. And is that the most logical yeah. reason why? Yeah, probably. Because you think, oh, wow, this mysterious and strange monument exists here. And then it makes the news that somebody blows it up. What's the first thing you're worried about something somebody doing going up to it and looking at it. Right. And yeah, so at yeah, that yeah. point, you know, it's a crime scene. They labeled it an act of domestic terrorism, all this stuff. And, uh, so it does make sense to knock it over, but it is interesting that, uh, you know, they, they could have just roped it off, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and you know, but then again, we're both cops. We understand, uh, you know, about how well crime scene tape works, you know, especially yeah. for people who have their curiosity peaked, uh, to an above normal level. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just did a quick search. It looks like the Georgia Guidestones uh, averaged about 20,000 annual visitors. Um, so it not didn't get like Disney a ton Land. of people. Yeah, it's not Disneyland. It's not It's not a, a ground zero or anything like that. But uh, it still gets uh, that's 20,000 people every single year that come and kind of look at it still. Yeah. So it's still an interesting piece. And you're talking about the land. The land is actually on, underneath it actually is also a granite like a uh, boulder the, it's right. like a huge granite like boulder i think and it's huge too i think it's like or i don't know they, they don't know for sure but like they estimate it's like three miles like deep and like a whole bunch of other like type of stuff it's like this huge granite boulder that's like there that they also built it on so it's a pretty big chunk of rock that's pretty incredible you know granite is one of the yeah. hardest substances in the world um but one of the things too because we're obviously going to get into it is granite mm-hmm. has very big significance to Freemasons. And uh, so the fact that it's made of granite is not just a coincidence. It's not, hey, uh, in Elbert County, Georgia, there just happens to be granite quarries. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it was picked for a specific reason that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that whole thing about specificity and why something happened and the very specific schematics with it, which we'll talk about, um, are on purpose, you know, and Mm -hmm. coincidence in this case, uh, doesn't exist as much as, you know, one may think, right. Um, Mm -hmm. you're talking and we're going to talk about some societies that do a lot of things on purpose that have, have a lot to do with, um, you know, with specifics, with very, very detailed minutia, and um, you know, to to maintain a secret society and run the world, right? You have to be very good at the small things. Um, yeah, for but, sure. But anyway, yeah, man. I think to me, one of the most interesting things with all of this is how the Georgia Guidestones has a lot of implications that. Um, secret societies in general, when you talk about them and the New World Order, um, 
they share a lot of similarities. I mean, you look at do. some of the things that are on there talking about, uh, you know, we look at climate change now, and then you talk about maintaining harmony with, you know, the infinite and leave room mm -hmm. for nature, all of these things that are on the Guidestones. And then you consider the fact that the Guidestones exist in the United States and Yep. Those guidestones have some phrases on them that you can find in the writings of specific founding fathers who are said to be, you know, a member of certain yeah. secret organization that we'll get into. So, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, man. I think that we should lead this off talking about Mr. Christian. What do you think? I think that's great. We should get into R.C. Christian, <laughs> which is a very, uh, very yeah. unique, uh, um, initials and last name right so that just kind of leads further into what we were talking about here that not you know when if you're going to go somewhere and you're going to give somebody a fake name you literally have license to pick any name you want you could have been philip baker you could have been thomas jones anything could zach have been smith. zach smith yeah thank you great minds for the light. <laughs> we um, do we do you could have picked any name but you didn't and so when you have intention behind what you're doing and everything that you're doing has to have some sort of meaning, of course, the name you're going to pick to give other people is going to be a name that has meaning, right? So RC Christian. Yep. So this, again, we'll say this is our opinion on evidence that you can find about this situation, about the people involved. Um, it is we understand, uh, in, in large part, conspiracy, but it is not meant to um, allude to the negative connotation that conspiracy can mean today, right, to a lot of mm -hmm. people. It's almost used as an accusation to um, erode somebody's credibility when you say the word conspiracy. Conspiracy means yeah. itself to conspire together to make something happen, right? Um, yep. So a lot of things in history are conspiracies and happened. The conspiracy to stab Caesar in the Roman Forum was a conspiracy and it happened. Mm -hmm. right? So that word has multiple meanings. It's just today, unfortunately, it's used as a derogatory term. So when yeah. we speak on the conspiracy around this, we mean only that it has um, ties in, in ways that you can't prove without, you know, in court, without all the information. We just don't have that. Does that make sense? Right. So, Cool. So Mr. Christian, it's very much speculated that, um, you know, the name R.C. Christian has ties to a group called the Rosicrucians. Yep. Right. So and so the Rosa, the Rosicrucians um, is, uh, is like a spiritual cultural movement that apparently arose in uh, Europe in the early 17th century. And the whole idea of Rosicrucian um, is to like represent uh, like their their symbol is like a rosy cross or a cross with a rose right in the middle that type of stuff. Um, so that's kind of where it like mainly comes from. But they are very similar in nature uh, to like Freemasonry um, and uh, like our founding fathers and kind of what they were kind of thinking about and stuff. Uh, but they're still also like very secretive. Um, it's uh, one of the things I looked up um, was was a video where these people were trying to find like Rosicrucians and stuff, and they found one. They found a girl who said she was a Rosicrucian. Okay. Um, but that, when I watched it, I was very interested by it because Rosicrucians are very secretive. So like Freemasons, like they obviously exist. People can be like, "Yeah, I'm a Freemason and stuff," um, 
like Rosicrucians are like Freemasons in the sense of how they operate, but they're way more secretive of telling people who they are and that they're a part of this group. So I thought it was very strange that this like woman was telling them that she was a Rosicrucian. Um, so I don't know how accurate she was, but she was very knowledgeable in that like uh, group and stuff. Um, what do you know about Rosicrucian stuff? What do you, what do you have to add to that? Right. So um, Rosicrucians, they, they do have a lot in common with, with Freemasons in specific mm-hmm. ways. Um, but largely, so I Googled Rosicrucians. And in California, mm-hmm. there are a lot of temples. And there are a lot of temples like Rosicrucian te- temples across the United States. Um, yeah. Canada, all over the world, right? And um, in California, there's actually a Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, Right. And it's, it's funny that that exists, but it makes sense when you consider a lot of the archaic knowledge and hidden hidden knowledge that the Rosicrucians and other secret societies um, claim to have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that, and again, our founding fathers, specifically Thomas Paine, wrote about um, in, in his book, Age of Reason, about Egyptian priests, right? Um, yeah. But anyway, so when you go on their website, there's literally a splash page and it says, congratulations on your decision to become a member of the order of Rosicrucians. Okay. And, um, so I click, so they like, just, so they just freely assume that if you go to their page, you just want to be one. So it's one of those things, right? Where, um, if you want to know, if you want to become a, a Freemason, all you have to do is ask, all you have to do is show up. Right. And, yeah. and um, I've asked this question before, you know, just out of curiosity, because I'm not a Mason, I'm not a Rosicrucian, I'm not whatever, right? But but I mm-hmm. have a healthy curiosity about these things, right? And I'll just say out loud, like my grandfather is a Freemason and, you know, mm. attained uh, a certain degree, let's put it that way. Um, yeah, yeah. But... You know, you go on the website for the Rosicrucians, they congratulate you on your decision on being in the website, and then it asks you what language you speak and then what country you're in, right? And it, it automatically chooses English and the United States, right? Um, and so I clicked like continue or whatever, and then it takes you to a page and it immediately asks you for $150, okay? And it's an annual fee, and you can choose to pay all $150 up front. It tells you that you know you will be charged $150 today, or yeah. you can select the monthly fee thing, and then you pay monthly, right? Uh, so so it gives that, you it gives you no information for money. Yeah, that's not true. So you know, it does give you. Okay. So there are other links on the page where you can go, and um, it'll tell you a ton of texts that you can read about. Okay. Okay, Rosicrucianism. And Rosicrucianism has a ton of undertones of mysticism, um, alchemical undertones. Um, they talk a lot about hidden knowledge. Um, it, it openly advertises that there are members of, of the Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian faiths. And, mm-hmm. um, but but the, uh, the, essential, the essential theme of Rosicrucianism, again, I keep using these terms, is hidden knowledge and mystic, like mysticism, okay? Mm-hmm. So that there is um, this belief that you, know, you are nature and the universe are these things that can be understood in a physical way and like through physical science, but magic at the same time, right? That using that term magic, like in a, like the alchemical sense, right? But it gives yeah, you all yeah. these, it gives you all of these sources you can go read. And one of the things with Rosicrucianism is that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's tied back to a person who, um, 
there's speculation on whether or not you know he was actually real or it was somebody who maybe was a pseudonym or made up. But Christian Rosenkreutz, yeah. um, if you'd say it in German, it's like Rosenkreutz. Um, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that this person you know produced all of these these mysterious texts, um, and they'd had like talked about um, alchemy and uh, you know. The, the divine overall being understood in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which it's so I, I looked again, you know, there's a ton of stuff, but immediately up front, it asks you for money before you can get into anything else. And to me, yeah, I yeah. see it as kind of like one of these filters where it's like, how serious are you about your interest in this? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because are you just a, are you just a person showing up to are, just are look? Just, yeah. Are you just me yeah. who's being nosy, right? And trying to find <laughs> yeah. out all this stuff. Okay. Trying um, to get info for a podcast. <laughs> right. And, it, and if it is a filter, it worked because I'm not paying, you know, money to not yeah. yet anyway, right. To dive yeah. into something like that and figure out what goes on. But again, um, you know, I well, have just talked to, to people, go ahead. I was going to say, it's a say on that too, is like 150 bucks, right? Like, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money, but to a lot of people, it is. Like, and so it, it's like a, in a way, it makes it so they. If one hundred fifty bucks isn't a lot to you, then that means you make a lot of money. So if you could easily just throw one hundred fifty bucks to be a part of this, then it keeps their organization relatively wealthy. And if most people who are relatively wealthy are probably also higher educated and a bunch of other stuff, so in a way. It kind of keeps it, it's it's bad to say this, but it's, they're in a way trying to keep like I guess like the lower income people out or the lower educated people out. They just want very specific type of person. Yeah, so I could. I see guess when that. it comes to economic class or whatever, mm-hmm. I could see that, and I could also see it as if you're charging people money to be a part of something, it's kind of yeah. like somebody charging a lot of money to purchase a dog. Right, you want to mm-hmm. ensure that the person who's buying your your animal or joining your organization has not just a uh, rudimentary curiosity like me to figure out you know some basic baseline information, but that you're mm-hmm. serious. So that when you enter that space with them, they don't. There's like knocking off a, 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 on your list of worries about somebody's seriousness about being present in that space, right? If you paid the money to be there, you're more than likely serious, and then therefore there's like almost like um, an element of trust that you're uh, uh, you know coming in with um, an initial trust builder. You know what I mean? I see it yeah. that way too. And yeah, I mean, for sure. Obviously, if you're you know if you're some boot airman you know and you're 18 years old you're probably not throwing 150 dollars at you know a website that says a word you probably can't pronounce right yeah and uh just doing it just because um no so, you yeah. need that 150 for your uh for your uh, shop at tornadoes and your bangs yeah or the jordans <laughs> you probably can't afford you know what i mean yeah so, your, but, your vape uh, juice Exactly. So, but the name R.C. Christian, uh, a lot of people speculate, is a reference to the Rose Cross R.C. Right or the Rose Christian, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously the word Christian in the name. And Mister Christian identified himself as a Christian and as the leader of loyal Americans who believed in God. Right. So, um, up front. I do agree. I mean, there's a lot of logical sense in why that name was chosen and given um, Mm -hmm. for somebody who is essentially the um, patron of a monument like that. Um, But then you look, you know, you know, if you want to expand on 
some of the tenets of Rosicrucianism and is some of the things that actually are on the monument. Um, before we get into some of the uh, evidence you can find about really who Mr. Christian is and then some of the beliefs he has and then some of the ties to some of the other organizations. Well, I've got a question. Well, before we kind of get to that, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. Uh, do you think Mr. Christian was actually a person high up in the Rosicrucian thing? Or do you think he is just uh, a symbol or a scapegoat for it? Because he, when he approached like the people to make the stones and stuff, he said that he was a representative mm-hmm. of this group. He was a representative of wealthy investors who wanted this up for like religious purposes and a bunch of other stuff. So like, do you think he actually was high up or was he just some bottom person who was just really passionate about the cause and was just chosen to do it just in case he was captured or found out or something crazy happened. So I'll say this, I could see him being a like mid tier near, near higher echelon level of leadership, I guess. Right. And this Mm -hmm. is pure speculation because when you go around, there's free Freemason temples, there's Rosicrucian temples all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. But all of these organizations have central leadership, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So to me, I guess he could be, and I'll just you know say before we talk more about it, that it's believed that uh, Mr. Christian was a physician from Iowa, that potentially yes. he um, was the leader, I guess you could say, of that group that was located in Iowa and not necessarily like overall Rosicrucian leadership, if he was indeed mm-hmm. Rosicrucian. Right. Um, yeah. But that's where that, that sense of representation and leadership comes from. Because again, right. Uh, the, what we learn about leadership is, that, you know, you're, you're the one taking action and doing things. And if you're going to commission something to the level of the Georgia Guidestones, you're not going to send, you know, Bubba, out to Georgia to fly out there, spend the time to stay out there, go through all the paper that, that to me now talking out this, this, um, the question, if you're going to a bank, right. And you have to potentially, you make the decision, right. To reveal your true identity under sworn secrecy to the other people. Okay. Then you're probably leadership. You know what I mean? Cause you're a, if you send someone else, the human quality there is to, there's going to be a sense of doubt about, you know, the, um, the, I guess, you know, what really happened or if that's going to happen. So, or that, that the uh, identity of your group is going to remain anonymous to other people. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, to me, I feel like some sort of like local Rosicrucian leadership probably, or if, like I said, he was actually Rosicrucian. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a good answer. Um, and, and the reason why I asked is because uh, I, when I was looking this up, there was like people who were like saying that, oh, he probably wasn't that high up or he's like a bottom feeder or whatever. But no, I agree with what you just said. You're not going to send a mid-tier bottom person organization to represent the organization for this. Um, and the, the amount of secrecy it entailed was because he was probably high up. If it was a bottom feeder, then it wouldn't matter who he was. He could have went and did it and he found out no one would care, to be honest. That's true. You know, just give a level of plausible deniability. You don't know this person yeah. or whatever, you know, yeah. and consider too, like, I mean, you've led troops just like I have when you need something important done, you know, you don't just go find 
anybody, you go to the people yeah. you trust. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so when you say that, I don't maybe per, perhaps um, you know Mr. Christian and this local group weren't the ones with the idea for the monuments. They could have been. He could have just been the person chosen to go and make that happen, or he could have come get up with the done. idea. Yeah. Yeah, just the guy to get it done, or he could have, mm-hmm. it could have been an idea that he generated on his own. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But uh, again, you know, it takes a certain amount of skill to figure out where you want to do this, and to specifically pick, you know, the random location of Elbert County, Georgia, and then based on the granite, and think about the time. Right, it's 1979. The internet mm-hmm. didn't exist. Um, there isn't just, you know, the ease of access to information at your fingertips. You mm-hmm. would have had to have had a network of people and done legitimate research to figure out that that existed, that granite quarry, those granite quarries existed in that specific spot. You know what I mean? Yep. So again, yep. that takes, that takes a dynamic level of information harvesting to be able to figure that out and make the decision. So again, we're tying that back into, you know, is he some sort of leadership? Yeah, probably. It doesn't make sense to me yep. Um, yep. that he's some sort of low-level, you know, guy. Yeah, and it's the, uh, is his name, too, just kind of, like, assigns him to be something of importance, because it's R.C. Christian. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the first um, manifestos written by the Rosicrucians in 1614 uh, there's a sentence that states the word RC should be their seal, mark, and character. So, like, anything RC is supposed to be, like, this was us. We did it. Like, we were oh, a part God. of this. Yep. Like, hey, that was us. We're not going to say it was us, but it was us. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of what it, what, it, what it goes back to, yeah. We're the sure. wet bandits. The wet bandits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Um. Going going back to the before I took you off your your question because I, I thought my question was more important. Uh, <laughs> could you could you go into it again? Could you repeat it for me so it's fresh in my mind and fresh in the listeners? <laughs> no, so um, you know the idea behind the Georgia Guidestones is a shared ideal in a lot of other conspiracies, right? And um, yes. That thought process about you know population control or climate change, you know living um, in harmony with nature, so to speak. They yes. all, as I said in the cold open, have a lot to do or can be seen through the lens of either eugenics, right? Talking about guiding reproduction wisely, and we'll mm-hmm. get into. We're going to go line by line at yep. these guidelines and talk about them, but. Yep. Uh, you know, the eugenic ideal the or the eugenic lens and genocidal lens, right? So let's just talk, you know, real quick before we get into the weeds like we will um, about that, right? So if you're not familiar with the term uh, eugenics, right, um, I feel like everybody's probably very familiar with the term genocide. Um, there's some very – Yeah. Right. So there's some very um, – I don't want to Whenever say I think of – Whenever I the right word, but – Yeah. Whenever I think of eugenics – First thing that comes to my mind of like most recent history is going to be Nazi Germany. Obviously, they had this idea that oh, there's a perfect race and we're going to build it and we're going to breed certain people to make their kids stronger, and that they were literally trying to make their population, their country, their people like the strongest, smartest, fastest. Um, And then they went to the Olympics and like lost most things, but. 
it's it's that concept though. It's what they're trying to do. Yeah, exactly. It's an intentional act of trying to improve and the belief in that you can create um, human, a perfect human that can engender a, a perfect population of human beings, right? And um, yep. there's a lot of very nefarious undertones with that. Obviously, some very dark things have happened um, in the name yes. of eugenics, right? But when you're talking about, as in the Guidestones, guiding reproduction wisely, right? And then it, it highlights, you know, the need for diversity. And then um, let me pull it up here because I don't want to misquote. Um, yeah, while you're pulling that up, mm -hmm. I just want to talk real quick because you said like, you know, guiding guiding genetics to whatever and do it wisely. But it's like, what is that based off of? Is it who decides what is wise for that? Who decides how it should be done? Who did like, because humans were naturally flawed if if anything has humans in it then it's flawed right mm -hmm. so it's gonna um it, it's a lot of power for one entity or one group or one person to decide who gets born who doesn't like that's a scary thought and that is that's always the question when you talk about any we talk about any large government overreach in the first place right not to get too yeah. far off onto a tangent but the ethereal them right they who are they? Mm -hmm. Why do they get to make these decisions? And again, we've said on other podcasts that human beings are fallible creatures. We make mistakes. Yep. We don't make the right decision. And very often we make decisions um, from an emotional place and through, through a selfish lens, whether you even realize that or not, right? And um, yep. so putting putting the um, the maintenance of humanity in the hands of a small select group of human beings is not a good idea. Um, but, Correct. you know... Um, I just I found the actual language is guide reproduction mm -hmm. wisely, improving fitness and diversity. So when you talk about eugenics, what do you want? You want somebody who's the perfect person, right? So when I think of genetic diversity, it doesn't necessarily just mean like racial diversity. Obviously, if you have a genetic pool that is very small, right, you're not going to have human beings that are as functional as you know, people that have a larger gene pool, right? Look at what happened with a lot of royalty throughout history. You know what I mean? All of the inbreeding deformities. that happened. Yeah. Exactly. You know, deformities. Um, you have um, intellectual, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you know. Disparities. Di yeah. Intellectual disparities, all these things that cause problems from having a gene pool that's too small. So I think of, yeah. I, when I think, when I look at this, I don't necessarily think of like diversity in the sense that you may think of today when you use the word diversity. And there's some evidence to yeah. back that up um, and some later things that we'll kind of bring up when we talk about some of the evidence that points to who Mr. Christian actually is. And I'll reference this mm -hmm. again later when we have this, that part of the conversation. Yeah. But talking about improving fitness and diversity to me means, um, you know, again, that eugenic lens, it's very easy to look at it from that angle, that eugenic lens. And then when you talk about maintaining humanity under 500 million, well, then you consider that the population of the United States is like 350 plus, right? Thereabouts yeah. right now. And yeah, yeah. consider that just 150 million more people would be the global population is, is pretty wild. And getting there, because it doesn't say reduce humanity to this number. It says maintain humanity, right? 
Which yeah. could also be, again, when you talk about making specific choices with what you're doing and how you say it, if you put something up that says reduce humanity to this number, it's automatically going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? You know what I mean? Yeah, you're just going to kill them all? Right. If you put maintain, okay, then that sounds less invasive, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure what the global population was in 1979. We would have to look that up. But I am fairly certain that it was above <laughs> 500 million people to where you could, you know, maybe, if, you know, you could say like, well, we're coming up on 500 million people. So we're going to put this monument up and be like, hey, let's just keep it here. That's not, you know what I mean? So again, yeah, yeah. saying that soft language you use when you're talking to somebody, when you're trying to like soften the blow of something you know they're not going to take very well. People tend to say things in a manner that is more easily understood and more easily felt, you know, taking that other person's emotions and thought processes into account. Maintain Mm -hmm. sounds better than reduce, in my opinion. That's kind of how I look at that. That's Brandon Gresham's, um, you know, view on that statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just jamied uh, the 1979 world population. Oh, and uh, it was 4.3 billion there was go, 1979. So, so not even close. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Way I more than uh, 500 yeah. million. <laughs> and I didn't think it was close, but still, you know. I'm just curious. Uh, I want to know when the world population was 500 million. That's an interesting question. I don't know. Genuinely. Yeah, because I want to know. Let's see here. So going back to why you looked that up, one of your your questions about, you know, do I think um, Mr. Christian was some sort of leadership? One of the things that he expressed to uh, to Joe Finley was that this, the idea of this guy, these guidestones was the work and efforts of two decades worth of work. Go ahead. Uh, the world population was... At estimated because they don't know for sure, obviously, to be 500 million in 1650, which is the same century when the oh. Rosicrucians were founded That's and wrote their first manifesto. I didn't know that, and we just tied that together. How interesting is that? That's very strange. That is very strange. Ah, oh, man, you know, like. Uh, let's just let's let's obviously we don't know if that is like yeah. actually true, but let's talk about that for a second. You know, if again, there's how would in our mind looking back at history, how would somebody know that that's the population of the planet? You know what I mean? Because and and the history we all hear about, okay, mm-hmm. 1650 was only like 150 plus years removed from. Columbus's journey to the New World, right? Even though we all know that Columbus was not the first person to discover, you know, the other side of the world. You know, Leif Erikson was yeah. somebody who way before Columbus did, and there's even evidence that the Chinese landed on what's now like the west coast of the United States prior to yeah, that. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but to Europeans, right, that idea of the New World is not, you know, super old. It's 150-ish years old. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, could you speculate back then? I don't know. But so it's really interesting to think about. Yeah. So, when what it says here is that they think it was 500 million. Um, and they say that's based off of just, uh, obviously, Western Asia, Europe, um, and, like, Africa and stuff like that. 
um, in like the Mediterranean area. They obviously don't know north and so. Ooh, what was that, Gresham? What was that there? We'll talk about it later. Oh, okay, a little teaser. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, well, they obviously don't know like the North and South America, all type of stuff. Which there was probably mil millions of people during in those areas as well. But well, yeah, you um, think a hundred years prior to that, you had the conquistadors running through South and Central America, just obliterating yeah. those Mesoamerican cultures, destroying yeah. them, killing people off. You know, so yeah. but I mean, you could. I mean, let's think about it, like. At that point, you did have people, um, you know, explorers going into Asia, going into the new the new world, right, and reporting back, you know. So, I mean, maybe, you know what I mean? Potentially, you could think, like, you send estimates of how many people you've run into, no matter where you go, you know what I mean? And yeah. that information, you know, information traveled slower back then, for sure, but 100, you know, talking about the span of decades, like it's very plausible, I guess, to at least see right through this conversation, how that could happen, you know, some sort of mm -hmm. census, you know what I mean? There were world maps, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah for sure. Interesting thought. That's actually kind of, I get the kind of wild 1650. Yeah. It just lines up with everything. It does. Cause it was, it was, what did I say? It was 1649 when the Rosa Christians wrote the, mm -hmm. See, yeah. it's a little bit of uh, synchronicity. That's so strange. That is. That, that just makes me... It was 1614 is when they wrote the manifesto. Sorry, okay. not 1649. But still, within 30-ish, 40-ish years. Off. No. Yeah. And if it's an estimate 500 million, it could have been 500 million in 1614 as well. Yeah. That's... That blew my mind. I didn't even know my mind was going to be blown more than it already was. Mm-hmm. That's insane. So, yeah. Um, the idea of population control, talking about being in harmony with Earth, those things are mm -hmm. all there, right? So, yep. when you consider the Georgia Guidestones and you consider some of the other conspiracies that, you know, people talk about and some of the, um, I guess, sort of uh, evidence that's out there in other areas, you get into some other organizations, right? And then um, some other... I guess you could, you know, buildings, facilities, and stuff like that around the globe, right? Um, so a while back, um, and again, you know, not to to use the term conspiracy in a derogatory way, right? Mm -hmm. But um, the conspiracy was levied, you know, by people like Alex Jones, and take 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 you know with you know a grain of salt with Alex Jones. Although you know he at some point sometimes he says things that have been right, but sometimes he says stuff that has been very not okay. Right. So even a blind know, a blind bird will catch a worm every once in a while. Sure, you, you pick or a, yeah, a blind exactly. drone. Sure, a blind drone. If it spies, it flies. <laughs> or flies, it spies. Right. Yeah. But um. So anyway, um, he infiltrated the Bohemian Grove, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in the day, um, you know, he had a news channel, I guess you could say, um, where he talked about what he found. And there's a, there's a YouTube video, which I remember, right? The first time I saw this video of him sneaking into the whole Bohemian Grove thing, uh, I was shown on post, right? Which is, of course, 
the place, you have all these really <laughs> kooky conversations. You know, someone's like, dude, yep. have you ever seen, have you ever heard of cremation of care? And I'm like, what is cremation of care? You know what I mean? Because like, I know what the word cremation means, you know? Yeah. It's just like, you know, you're like, my grandma was cremated. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. When you're cremating care, it's like, what does that mean? You know? And so you, sh I'm shown this video. Okay. And it's very grainy. Um, there's this spooky music going on. There's this really large statue, you know, and I'm like, what the fuck is all this? You know, looking at mm -hmm. it and there's like, you know, this guy talking and he's being really loud and animated. And then you can just see all this mist coming across the body, water and a boat and people getting off. And then like, what well, looks like them sacrificing somebody. And then it's just like, what the hell? This is on YouTube. You know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, and it's supposedly filmed in secret with all these people watching it, you know, and, um, and you're just like, what the hell, you know? And um, so I remember thinking, like, dude, if that's real, that that's terrifying, you know. And that was like kind of like my introduction into secret societies and you know their nefarious plans for the rest of us. Okay, um, their festivus for the rest of us. And, yeah. Um, but regardless, you know, that kind of takes you down the road of some other things, right? So some of the other. Um, ideals that organizations like Bohemian Grove, which 100% is a real group. Okay. Yes. Um, they meet so for legitimately for people who don't. Yeah. 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 So for people who don't know the Bohemian Grove was founded apparently in 1878. Um, it's a 2,700 acre, like compound, huge place in, uh, Monte Rio, California. Yeah. In Monte Rio, California. Um, and they have, it's a all male membership that includes artists, musicians, as well as many prominent business leaders, government officials, and former U.S. presidents, senior media executives, and just a ton of people of power. But again, they're all men. Um, it's this huge area, and they they go there for uh, um, a while, and it happens it happens annually, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, That's what they happens say. annually, right? Yeah, happens annually, and they go there for I think like a week or so, or a couple of days, and it's just like a huge get together. And who knows what they're talking about? Who knows what they're planning? What they're coordinating? Um, it'd be a great place to maybe do some new world order stuff. Kind of get those ducks in a row. And and that's the implication, right? And that's kind of the yeah. whole. Those are the ties we're trying to make here to the guidestones. These ideas of population control and making decisions for other people, you know, having, again, um, you know, one of the things in the Georgia Guidestones, it says, you know, right here, uh, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court, right? So mm -hmm. there is no such thing as a world court right now. Like there are organizations that represent large portions of the world, right? The UN, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? NATO, that you know the World Economic Forum supposedly speaks for the world, even though we all know how terrifying that group is, right? Yes, so, but there very are, scary. Are, there is no world court, right? You cannot say like what's going on now, right? Let's just use this as an example. You can't yeah. say like all these countries are petitioning Russia and Ukraine to take it before the world court and sort their issues out before going to blows, right? There is nothing like that. So mm -hmm. when you talk about these groups like Bohemian Grove or the Bilderberg Group, right, and then other older groups of people making decisions on behalf of other people that are um, that tie into a grander scheme, right? Um, that's what all of this is about. 
when you meet there in Bohemian Grove, this whole cremation of care thing, okay, is about throwing off the cares of the world. And if you listen in the video, one of the things this person orating very animatedly, he says is, be gone, dull care, okay? And I looked that phrase up. And essentially, all it, it's, it's actually um, has ties to an old, a very, very old movie, um, that, that, that sentence, okay? But be gone, yeah. dull care basically just means to cast off your worries, okay? And this isn't like, you know, uh, don't worry, be happy, okay? Just go about having a good day. It's not hukuna matata. This is, <laughs> you know, be gone, dull care, cremation of care is throwing off the weight and yoke of humanity and that you have to make decisions that may have um, human collateral, okay? And that when you're making decisions about, you know, who's going to get to eat or whatever, right? Yeah. These are the sorts of cares that you're quote-unquote cremating when you're attending these things so you can make decisions um, almost um, from a guilt-free standpoint. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's where you're like, oh, it's perfectly okay for these for me to eliminate the these people because it's saving humanity in the at the end game the lives right. of a of many outweigh the lives of a few or vice versa the lives of a few outweigh the lives of the many whatever their kind of idea is here yeah it's like um it's almost a utilitarian idea in that you know what's best for the majority may leave a minority of people who are just going to get the shit into the stick essentially and yeah. you know and that you know being a leader like in the military, you know, you make decisions that are going to leave people unhappy, right? And that leaves you with, um, at least some people, I should say, with like a sense of like guilt or like you failed in some aspect, you know what I mean? Obviously, mm-hmm. we're not talking about something as small as making a day to day or something that can be as small as making a day to day decision as a leader in any position. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, because in the military, you can't make decisions that cost people their lives, right? Um, but throwing off, you know, those cares of the world when you're making decisions to preserve humanity or really just preserve your own interests as the elite of the world, which is more than likely mm-hmm. what's what we're talking about here. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of the elites of the world, of the world, um, do you think we should probably kind of get into kind of what these guidestones were saying? Like these commandment type things, we can go line by line, kind of figure out uh, what are, what each other's thoughts on or about, and kind of what we think they mean by what mm-hmm. by what the, how they're written and stuff. Yeah, let's do that, um, and we can circle back a little bit onto some of the uh, other evidence out there that exists today that isn't conspiracy. Um, you know, when it comes to you know, these groups of people making decisions for us. And then, you know, just kind of some of the ties they have to some of these older organizations like the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. Um, but yeah, you for sure. Start, you want to start us off here? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to start at the bottom and move our way up to the top because the top one is the one that I think is the most controversial, which we've kind of already kind of discussed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of these, uh, like you said in the beginning, they're not as they sound great. Like, obviously, that's something we should do. So, um, we're going to go line by line here. So, we'll start at number 10. Um, and it says, Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. So, it says that last line twice. twice. 
What are your thoughts on that one? Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature times two. Mm-hmm. So I look at it, you know, pretty plainly, I suppose, that yeah. when you look at human beings in general, we are very destructive creatures, okay? We mm-hmm. don't, for the most part, live in harmony with nature. There's very, there are lesser examples or less examples of human beings making an actual effort to live in harmony with nature than there are examples of human beings just using the world as a tool for its own advancement, right? Um, for sure. So when I, you think about that, you know, you consider, you know, just the things human beings do. We overfish, we overfarm, we over, you know, we deforest, you know, all these things. We, we have, um, you know, to create energy, we've um, had these massive disasters, you know, these nuclear reactor meltdowns, Fukushima, mm-hmm. right? We had that massive oil spill that happened in the Gulf. Well, there's been multiple, but like the one I'm thinking of is um, the one that happened in the 2010. BP. Yeah, the one that happened BP in 2010 oil in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> you know, these things that you could say they're a cancer on the earth, right? Because we're doing things that damage the the only planet we have, right? And mm-hmm. you are just driving that point home with leave room for nature, leave room for nature. But let's consider the language again here, right? Being very specific with the words we use, okay? We, mm-hmm. we are carving words into one of the hardest substances known to man, okay? So you're not doing this arbitrarily, you're doing nope, this it's not willy-nilly so when you yep. say be not a cancer on the earth right you do you don't need we don't need to explain just obviously how devastating something like cancer is right so when you are alluding to human beings being cancer and or not you know saying don't be a cancer on earth you're already implying that there's decisions that are being made that are cancerous to you know the survival of the earth or our survival on this planet right yep so already uh, casting dark overtones onto people in general and looking at people in a negative way, right? Is that sort of like self-loathing that exists in a lot of these groups, okay? Um, And again, seeing – this is the thing with a lot of these groups, again, like when you talk about – you know, the, the them or they, right. Is they see, they see themselves as these people that aren't a part of, you know, everyone else. And that's kind of what we're getting at here is, um, these groups exist, right. To make decisions, um, outside of, what lesser men, the interests of lesser men. And that's what, again, like the Bohemian Grove is all about. This, yep. you and me aren't welcome, right? We're not Henry Correct. Kissinger. We are not, you know, a president. We're not Jeff Bezos. These are people that have been to Bohemian Grove, right? We're just you and me, you know, two, two people, middle class, average Joes, right? We're not welcome. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's on purpose. You're being exclusive because you see yourself as the answer and not the cancer and not not trying to rhyme, but it did. Right. So (laughs) you're a poet and you don't even know it. I It happened that way. But you see it. So to me, I take this as be not a cancer, leave room for nature, leave room for nature as nature is good. Humans are bad, so to speak. Does that make sense? That's why there needs to be less of us. What do you see? Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> you took all the words out of my mouth, Gresham. Um, get out of my head. Um, but no, I, I wanted to. Di- I did want to touch on kind of what you started with. We were talking about how humanity destroys the earth to be able to live in it. Mm-hmm. Like every other animal that I can think of, and obviously there's probably going to be some animals that destroy things, but almost all of them live in harmony in some sense with the earth. Um, we're the only creature that like changes entire ecosystems to make it better for us. Like Mm -hmm. that is crazy to me. And I think this might tie in like be not a cancer on the earth. Right. So Mm -hmm. technically every human being has cancer. Cancer is just an overabundance of like your cells growing. And then they, because they're, because they're populating so fast, they get damaged and then it just becomes an issue. But if you're relatively healthy, your body can fix that. It goes, wait, stop doing that. It kills off the cell that's overpopulating, so it stops doing it, and it continues on. So it's okay for your, to, for your body to have cancerous cells. It's just your body needs to have not a lot of them so it can contain it and keep you healthy. So this kind of will tie into maintain 500 million so if it's saying us as humanity or cancer, 500 million might be the amount that this organization is saying that it's enough so it doesn't become an abundance and cause cancer. It's enough to where nature can contain it mm-hmm. and keep everything in harmony. Right. Yeah. Right. You want to hit us with the ninth, you want to hit us with the ninth one, Gresham? Yeah, man. So it says here, to me, this is again tying into the last one, but again, uh, in a way, there's an element of truth to it, right? So prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite, right? So off the bat, to me, we have this, this Rosicrucian element of the infinite, right? There's the infinite, to me, um, invokes thoughts of that like mystical uh, element and trait that exists in some of those those Rosicrucian Freemason thought processes, right? That mm-hmm. we all we all belong to a larger infinite, um, and then you know, prizing truth, beauty, love, all these things um, to remain in harmony, right? Um, to me, this just again like speaking plainly on what I think this could mean and what their over the overarching theme here that they're getting at is, you know. What somebody finds to be truth or beauty or love is subjective, okay? Like, ultimately, right, like something like love should be objective, right? Because it should have one meaning, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, um, but obviously it it doesn't because we all love, we love different people and different people are different, right? So there's also different forms of love. Different forms of love. Like the Greek, like I think it's like with the five different Greek versions of love and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so seeking harmony with the infinite to me, this is just like one of these like esoteric thoughts, uh, thought processes on like uh, finding the good in things, and you know staying true to what's good, and that the overarching infinite or nature, right, is is that good because if you as a human being are you know, fundamentally funneling your energy into truth, beauty, and love, then you're more in line with what nature is, which to me just harkens back to, you know, if I have to tell you to do good, then, you know, inherently you may be bad, I guess. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? No, I, I see that too. My my thing with it though is that prize truth, beauty, 
love, right? Mm-hmm. If if this is like, like a a new world order where like you would have like overlords like looking over you, you said how like obviously beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Truth is also in kind of like what you kind of believe in and kind of how you grew up, stuff like that. Things that happen in your life. Um, there is actual truth. Like two plus two will always be four. It's not going to not be four. Right. But like, there's certain things that can still be subjective. Um, but if you have your overlords, I think this is, is kind of in a way. It's kind of in a way like if you look at like North Korea, right? They have their like supreme leader, and he designates or their their government designates what haircut you can get and like what clothes, what type of clothes you can wear. Cause that's their beauty and their truth. I'm wondering if that might be kind of what they're getting at here too, to where they're like, well, when we control it all, there will be this beauty and there'll be this truth. And that's what you will prize. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, when, when you think about it, you have, there is some empirical evidence of groups um, that have say out loud or at least say outwardly that they have the interests of people in mind right um Mm -hmm. you know not to jump ahead to our next guest but in his book okay he talks about how as a kid um you know he was thrown into school with and i'm gonna kind of speak generically right and they had uniforms right they had a white t-shirt with the neckerchief they had to wear and you know the neckerchief color was basically what your rank was in the structure there at the school right so Mm -hmm. you have again you're giving somebody an identity when you do stuff like that okay which is the whole reason behind wearing uniforms whether it's in the in the military or in school right you know my Mm -hmm. my daughter wears a uniform at school it's kind of removed some of the identity to make you know to the idea behind it is to limit bullying, right? But like, so yep. again, that decision was made for the benefit of everybody else, right? So there is evidence of people doing that as a form of control that's for the greater good. Greater good, I say in quotations. Yeah. That actually leads into the eighth one. Mm-hmm. Balance personal rights and social duties. Yep. So you were just talking about how like, you you would use uniformity and you would use like the stripping of individuality to kind of control and stuff. That would be the the um, the social duties, like the yeah. group, the togetherness. This is the balance. It so there needs to be a balance of you being an individual, but still wearing your uniform, being part of the group. You know what well, I mean? See, here's here's the thing, man. Like again, like not to like jump back into what we were just saying with Rick's book, right? But the whole concept of where you're part of a community, so you as an individual have no ownership, right? So balancing, that's your social duty, is that your business or your personal items are no longer yours. It's a social duty that you give up that ownership in this specific example, right? You're giving Mm -hmm. up your ownership because it belongs to the collective, okay? Yeah, these are, for the greater good. Right, and these are concepts, again, like what we're talking about, the uh, ideology we're talking about in the book is communism, right? Castro. Marxism. Com- com- Marxism, communism, right? Um, but balancing personal rights with social duties, obviously, you know, and we've discussed this before, but as, as an American or as a human being, you do have social expectations, right, to do and make decisions that are the best for other people, right? You're not just going to, again, you know, let's use an example. You're not going to blow through a four-way stop sign because you want to, okay? It is yes. the law that says you must stop at a stop sign 
but this is like the difference between malum prohibitum and malum in se, right? What is inherently wrong and what is wrong based on the law, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's wrong to blow through a four-way stop sign because you may kill somebody or hurt somebody, but it is also against the law, right? But it's your social responsibility not to harm other people, right? So the pursuit of happiness, you know, as long as your rights and what you're doing don't infringe on my rights and what I'm doing, right? So those are social yep. responsibilities. There's a social contract we all engage in every single day. But to me, this is not talking about generic social duties. This is talking about, hey, it's like, you know, you must, you may have to give up some of your personal freedom to be able to participate in society. And when you don't want to do that and you're not uh, balancing your personal, it says here too, personal rights. Rights yeah. are inherent. No one gives you your rights. You are born with your rights. There is not Correct. a piece of paper. There is not a person that says these are your rights. Your rights exist because you exist. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right? So when you say, it's basically like saying you have to be okay, again, with this whole giving up a little personal liberty for a little security. You know what I mean? No. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but to me, that's what that says. Balance your personal rights with social duties, meaning you have to give up some of your personal rights for the better of other people. And that right there yeah. is 100% control and not okay. That's how I see that. I, yep. Uh, I agree. Uh, I think you're like the master of like segueing without even knowing you're segueing. Um, but you you brought up laws and you brought up like stop signs. Number seven, avoid petty laws and useless officials. So this one for me, again, the idea of this whole thing is that there would be like a group in charge. So like, what are petty laws to the to the group or something like that? Um, I'm hoping that they're like getting into stuff like, so in Washington state, there is still a law that you can't put an ice cream cone in your left pocket. It's illegal. The law comes from like, like hundreds of years ago. And the idea is, uh, people would steal horses because they would put like an ice cream cone in their left pocket. And then the horse would, like, follow that person because they wanted the ice cream cone and you'd steal someone's horse. So they were like, you can't put ice cream cones, like, in your pockets or something. I'm sorry. Yeah. That makes no sense. If you're putting ice cream in your pocket, it's going to be ice cream, cones. ice cream much longer. Oh, like, just the cone. Just the cone, Out yeah. Sans ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The waffle cone is in your pocket. Yes. Got you. Okay. Yeah, and then it's also, like, I'm hoping they're also getting to the idea to where, like, a lot of laws that come out today will, like, um, or, like, bills and stuff, there'll be a bunch of, like, nuance in there and, like, a whole bunch of fluff or, like, just ridiculous stuff, and then they'll make that law, and instead of just, like, re-looking at that law to get rid of the fluff when that doesn't make sense anymore, they make another law that negates parts of that law, so it eventually becomes, like, a hundred laws deep and you have to read all of them to figure out what part of each law makes sense or still applies or whatever and that gets that, into the useless officials like <laughs> i think the best example of this is is the military um because there again there's an a 
abundance of people in the military and there's an abundance of people in certain pay grades, ranks, right? And so when mm-hmm. you get into a unit where there's an abundance of, let's just use like the senior and CO pay grade, right? What do they yeah. do? They create jobs for all these people because they have to have responsibilities commensurate with their rank and their their level of experience, right? So you yep. see it all the time. They create positions for people that really don't exist, but they'll take apart somebody else's job and say, eh, you can do this. You know what I mean? And then, then now you've kind of your, – your co – consorts in this position when there's no need for you to be that way and so Mm -hmm. in turn that useless official now generates petty laws right because now if i want to route something keeping with the military theme i must go through not one not two but you know three four or five other master sergeants or whatever to get what i need when beforehand All that bureaucracy didn't exist before, right? So we see that with our government. There's all kinds of officials that don't need – like look at what happened with Twitter recently, right? What what Elon Musk said online about, well, when you're not running basically a um, a censorship program, you can fire whatever he said, like 80,000 people, right? So to me, again, it's like one of these things where when you have a self-licking ice cream cone, you create jobs to lick that ice cream cone. And Mm – that's to me what that says. And see, this is one of those things we're just talking about where like that makes sense. Like I yeah, said, Nicole, it does open, make sense. No one likes nonsensical things and no one likes yeah. bureaucrats. If you, if you, again, to go back to like the example of the military, you're just trying to go on leave. You need this person's signature. They're not in their office because their job is BS and they don't need to be there anyway. So they're always mm-hmm. on their three hour lunch. But you need this signature or somebody's initials to go do this thing. How many times have you just said, fuck it, okay, and just gone above them? Or, heaven forbid, right, and I'm not saying this happened, you pencil whip somebody's signature or whatever. So you can go on leave, which is constitutional or a, a congressional right, right? Yeah. Anyway, just saying, right, you find ways around them because they don't, they don't have a purpose for existing. And mm-hmm. when you have, to me, this is one of those things where, like, that makes total and absolute sense to avoid yep. petty laws and useless officials. Another example, of use, yeah, another example of the useless officials and petty laws is from the book that our uh, guest that's coming up wrote. He was talking about how he was trying to help a certain group of people and... You know, he's trying to work with the U.S. government, but because one side of the government was mad at the other side, they, like, canceled it all. So then the people he's trying to help and the cause he was being, like, you know, responsible for just all of a sudden got no more funding, lost, like, a whole bunch of assets, like, a whole bunch of things. And then it was, like, a year later when the two sides made up, it came back. And it was just a petty, useless thing that overall hurt the global situation more than it helped their I'm mad at you situation. Bureaucrats ruining things is what I heard. Yeah. Which is common trend. Yeah. Cool. Next one. Uh, Number six. Yeah. Let all nations rule internally resolving external disputes in a world court. So to me, I look at this as harmony would be us solving all our own problems, being, you know, autonomous, not needing, outside support and when you have a conflict you go to a greater collective to help make a decision to avoid conflict meaning violent conflict right but again to me 
this implies, uh, you know, one world government, right? Yeah, there has to be some oversight. Court system, exactly. I was just about to say that. A a court system has to have oversight, and that typically means appointed officials, okay, Mm -hmm. and not necessarily elected officials. Could you imagine trying to have a global election? You could not have somebody who appeals to both Americans and Indonesians and Indonesians and Nigerians, right? Because we all have different needs based on our geographic location and our lifestyles, right? So all the officials that would be voted in would be Chinese or Indian because they have the most votes. (laughs) Sure, right? Or (laughs) consider some of these organizations that exist already who voted in Klaus Schwab, right? You know, this person... He exists, right? And, and some of these yeah. other – all I'm saying is these would have to be and would more than likely be appointed positions, right? So again, you know, I mean, consider our own Supreme Court. Those are appointed positions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so if you're going to have a world court, you're going to – A, there's going to be filters to get there. You should have to be a lawyer, and in turn, yeah. be a judge, right? Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. so that requires a specific, very specific and very long process to even get to the point where you're qualified as a lawyer or a judge. And then on top of that, you're now being appointed to a world court where you're making decisions for countries in this, in this you know, guideline, okay? You're making decisions yep. to resolve external disputes, right? Could you imagine mm-hmm. having a panel of people let me just give you an example, right? So you have you've had we have examples throughout history of panels of people making decisions for large groups. Okay, post World War One, you have the creation of something called the Sykes Pico Agreement. Are you familiar? Yeah. Okay. So right. So for anybody who's not familiar with the Sykes Pico Agreement, this essentially drew the lines of the modern Middle East. Okay. And yeah. Horrible decision. Horrible decision. Okay, these are Europeans making decisions, right? Specifically English and French, you know, Europeans making decisions for people in the Middle East. Not taking into account, you know, ancient tribal lines, ancient belief systems, ancient friendships and frenemieships, right? All this stuff. Not just, just fuck it. Here are the lines. Israel exists. You know, right? That was way later. But anyway. That's World War II. Yeah, no, I know. I was making a joke. (laughs) Yeah, because again, that that was again arbitrary decisions by other people. But yep. what's one of the first things that happened when ISIS took hold in those areas? They started knocking down physical barriers that were erected that marked Sykes Pico era agreements on what boundaries were. Okay, yep. because it didn't make sense and doesn't make sense logically based on right what those people in that area think. And their ideologies and their religious belief systems and all these things, right, that had, that really all the Sykes-Picot Agreement did was create a bunch of other problems, okay? So mm-hmm. using that example of, you know, a, again, a group of people making decisions arbitrarily for others does not go well historically. Yeah. Uh, number six, I'm just going to tie five into it because uh, this is protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts because you were talking about how if there's a world court they need to be like just they need to be like fair that's number five um and it just kind of gets to uh so the reason why laws and courts work is because there's a consequence right so for there to be a world court 
that would dictate things for nations means there needs to be nation-sized consequences or else the nation would That's do whatever the heck it wants. It. Right? Or else the nation yeah. would do whatever the heck it wants. It wouldn't care about your world court. No. So, like, for example, today you have the UN, which I guess would be the closest thing today to a world court, where they will, like, come together and be like, North Korea is doing bad things, so we're gonna, like... Together, Sanctions. sanction North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not a real big consequence because the North Korean regime is still doing whatever the heck they want, when they want. All it's doing is just hurting the North Korean people, to be honest, like the lower yeah. tiers of like their economic situation. Um, so like that wouldn't work in this fashion either. Like the consequence would have to be grave, like dire. And the only consequence I could think of is just annihilation. Like, that's the only thing I could think of that would be like, oh, crap, I need to listen to the world court. And if that was a thing, then, I don't know, it just, it, it kind of just sends me in a rabbit hole to thinking, like, is the world court, like, the only thing that has, like, nukes? And if, like, <laughs> if you're, like, exactly. if, you're, if, you're, if you're being a punk, they just nuke your country out of existence <laughs> and that's the thing man when you talk about stuff like this there's almost an element of like naivety that exists in all of these things to yeah. sit there and say let nations rule internally resolving external disputes in a world court okay how are you going to maintain and exert that authority okay exactly how are you going to go about resolving disputes between countries because that implies that you have ultimate authority. How are you exerting that authority? How are you getting other people to comply with that authority? What's an easier way? Let me put it this way. Let me paint it in this light. Is it easier to control 500 million people? Or is it easier to control billions of people, right? So again, these things start tying into one another. If you're going to yep. let nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court, but you're protecting people and nations with fair laws and just courts. What fair laws and what just courts are you talking about? Are you talking about, you know, if we're resolving, so it says let nations rule internally, that does imply some sort of local, localized court system. But if there's a mm -hmm. global court, right, it also implies that that global port, court probably has some sort of oversight over the decisions a local court is making because if they're resolving disputes, then... Yep inherently there's some authority over that right so again we start starts begging all these questions right how are you exerting authority how do countries now exert authority over one another right they, we're, we see it on the news every day russia threatens to use nukes if you do certain yep. things right the united states yep. does this or europe does this why we're gonna do this right and that is and it's, a, it's yep. a it is it is a mode of authority and it's a mode of control and manipulation you know what i mean and again it's easier to control a smaller population than it is to control a larger population. You see it, you know, if you're a teacher and you've got 50 students, you kind of have probably a lot of mayhem going on as opposed to if you're a teacher and you've got 10, right? Yep. Just saying. I'm going to better myself, and you continue to be a master of segues. Uh, we looped five into six. Number four is rule passion, faith, tradition and all things with tempered reason you just said it's easier to rule 500 people how would you dictate these things well you would probably control their passion their faith and their traditions making them almost kind of like sheep just following whatever you tell them to do 
because they don't know anything else. Here's two things, right, with this one. First off, one of the first things you do with a people when you're trying to control them is you remove their identity and what makes them separate from you, the the uh, perceived ruling class, okay? The Germans did it with the Jews, right? They gave them mm-hmm. all stars. They put them in camps. They took away their identities, right? The United States did it with Japanese Americans and we did. during World War II. We threw them in not whatever you want to call them, right? Rehoming camps or, you know, whatever they use what soft language internment they camps used, internment camps what soft language they used right yep. to corral japanese americans um but again what you do when you want to control people you remove their identity that's why you shave everybody's head that's why you give everybody the same uniform when you go to basic training you are all you are all pieces of shit just the same you know what i mean and yep. but that's what you, you are do. all trainees exactly the other thing here right Rule, passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason, to me, 100% ties right back down into balance, personal rights, and social duties. If you're ruling your passion, your faith, and your tradition, those all have, again, aspects of your identity, right? Your faith, your tradition, your passion. Not everybody is passionate about playing guitar. Not everybody is passionate about playing soccer. We all have different Mm -hmm. passions. They are inherent to us as individuals, right? Identity. Faith, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, faith, whether yep. you have faith in an alt, you know, a higher being or you have faith in whatever it is, the goodness of the world, however that that looks to you, right? Individualism, okay? Yep. Tradition. Traditions that, you know, Hispanic families have are going to be different than traditions yep. that culturally, you know, African families have. Or yep. whatever. You know what I mean? The Germans have mm-hmm. different different Christmas traditions than, you know, people who celebrate Christmas in Florida. You know, Americans. Yep. You know what I mean? And that's not to say yep. you can't be German and live in Florida, but you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. They're individual characteristics of you and they're your identity. So if you're balancing your personal rights or social duties, you're casting off what makes you who you are. Right. By setting aside your rights for social duties. So when you're tempering... Okay, your faith, your tradition, your passions, you're removing or pushing down what makes you who you are. So you can be a better cog in the wheel or a sheep for the collective, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how, to me, those two tie together perfectly. And again, talks about, to me, inherently controlling people. Because if you're tempering who you are and you're doing it for the betterment of society, then you want people to be a collective. For sure. And... The thing with it, so like, out of all types of governments that humanity's ever had, which ones rule passion, faith, and tradition? It's going to be communism, Marxism, dictatorships, ones that, like you said, strip away your individual abilities. Individualism. Correct. So, like, we can take like North Korea for example. Their faith is extremely tempered with the reason of Kim Jong Un. Everyone in North Korea, they literally took the Bible, and anywhere where it was, like, Jesus, they put, like, Kim Jong-il, pretty much. So, like, I don't know if you knew that, but, like, they pretty much took the Bible, and they rewrote the whole thing. Mm -hmm. What's that? No, who'd you say put it in there? Uh, Kim Jong-il. Okay. They put Kim Jong-il in there, because, or no, is it Kim? I forget. It's the Grant. Kim Kim Il-sung? That's the one. 
Kim Il Sun is the one that they um, put in there and stuff. So like wow. he's the glory leader and all that type of stuff. And they rewrote it to be that way. So when you're reading their Bible, it's very religious and all that type of stuff. You know, he's a know god. That. Yeah, he's a god. All that type of stuff. So it's it's insane. But that's what they're doing. They're ruling your passion. That's why you have to like cry when he walks by you. You have to like praise him and like love him, like no matter what. I yeah, know that. Like, I mean, his pictures everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, which just seems that, to be a, a theme with dictators, anyway. But yeah, yeah, that's why. Like, if your house catches on fire in North Korea, and you only had the option to either save your family or save the pictures of the glorious leaders. You better save the pictures of the glorious leaders or else you're going to die. Like, they're going to kill right. you. And it still doesn't like, mean you get an extra ration of rice at the end of the day. No. You probably still die. Probably. Because you don't have medical care after you got a bunch of burns saving the dear leader. And inhaled, uh, <laughs> inhaled a bunch of smoke. Yeah. But that, that's what I'm getting at. Like, some of these things, like, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then, like, when you start combining them, you're like, uh, something's kind of fishy here. It kind of sounds like something that's like really bad, and it kind of sounds like socialism, communism, Marxism, dictatorship. Uh, very, very weird. Um, and that kind of uh, so. So the third one here, there's no good segues here. We're just going right into it. it says Same. unite humanity with a living new language. Again, this is getting rid of traditions. This is getting rid of individuality. It's getting rid of. Um, um, like your past, like all this stuff, because if you just made all humans have to use one language, there's so much history that it's just going to be wiped away. It's that's just going to be gone. That's the overarching theme throughout all of this is the removal of the self, the removal of identity, personal identity for a collective identity. Um, Correct. Because having a collective identity means, right, you're all moving towards, you know, the same goal or you all believe mm -hmm. the same thing. You know what I mean? And there is utility in that, okay, when, again, to use the example of the military, you show up at basic training, you all are wearing whatever the hell you showed up in, you know, they take you immediately and cut your hair, you get the same uniform, they teach you to march in the same lines, all of these things, they it breeds collective, right? And mm -hmm. control because you're part of the collective. And then you start to it starts to, you know, almost breed this thought process of the collective. You know what I mean? And um in, in a way they unite they unite their own language. Like um when I became point, a recruiter when I became a recruiter at recruiter school, they had to like tell us, Hey, uh, you've been living like the last like 10 years in the air force. When you talk to your coworkers, you talk a certain way. Cause it all makes sense to you. Mm. But, uh, uh, a recruit thinking of joining has no idea what PCS mean. TDY, um, uh, True. uh, a lace report. They don't know what a salute report is. They don't know what rap is. <laughs> like there's all these things. They don't know what a doty is. They don't know what the UC is. There's all these things that we just casually throw around our language. Um, but yeah. they have no idea what it is and we have to teach them it. They have to be, um, uh, say, you know, indoctrinated into it. 
you take it a step further too, right? Like obviously, you know, the military at large has jargon that we all understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the Air Force has jargon that somebody who's in the Army may not be like, what? What do you mean? Right? And the yeah. Army may have, you know, well, not may, 100%. We all as different branches have jargon that we use with other, you know, between airman to airman, marine to marine, sailor to sailor, right, that yep. you get. But if you say something, right, to – like if I say AFI to a soldier or a Marine, they're going to be like, what? Right? Because mm-hmm. it specifically stands for Air Force Instruction. Well, Marine mm-hmm. isn't worrying about Air Force Instructions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'll say out loud, I have no idea what the equivalent to the Marine Corps is. You know what I mean? I think it's, and, uh, I think it's MCI, Marine Corps Instruction. It, it, but it, I actually – well, I think it could be, you know, Who knows? I'm to pretty me, sure they've – they've fallen – I don't think there are any Marine Corps instructions because they fall into the Navy technically. I think they're all Navy instructions. There, I mean, I mean, who knows? There could be <laughs> well, yeah. some sort of Marine, thing, but you know. Yeah. Uh, but all I'm getting at is, is your you actually? That's a very good uh, way to analogize this. Is that yeah. when you're collective, you do develop your own language, right? But this is telling specifically unite humanity with a living new language. It will remove a lot of the identity that comes with speaking your own language. Because if you've ever met somebody, right, because in the United States, the majority of people speak English, right? And there are people who are bilingual. There are people who English is their second language because they immigrated here or they were raised in a home where they spoke Spanish or whatever. You know what I mean? Yep. That's one of the great things about the United States is you do have so much cultural diversity. But if you go talk to somebody who grew up in a country like this, you know, use Germany or France, right? You know, I'll say this. The German, the Europeans do know English. That's what they that's what they learn at a young age. So they can talk to each other. So the German can talk to somebody who who's Italian, what do they do? They speak English to one another because they all learn mm-hmm. English. It's like, it's like the, the lubricator um, language, okay? People in Japanese also at, learn English. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or Japan, not Japanese. Yeah, I know what you meant. <laughs> but you're a very proud French speaker or you're a very proud German speaker, right? Yes. And it, it is. It's a cultural identity to speak German or to speak French or speak Italian. Right. And even further, there are certain like Spanish. There's a very big difference between speaking like Spanish as somebody who's Puerto Rican or Spanish as somebody who's Mexican or Spanish as somebody who was born in Spain. Right. There are different dialects. Mm-hmm. Even there's different dialects of German. But there and you know, to talk about if you are somebody who's Bavarian in Germany, like and you go talk to somebody who is a Rhinelander. They may not understand certain things they're saying to one another. And Bavarians very much think, you know, like they're their own country. So language mm-hmm. is very much a self-identifier. So again, we're going through this. The predominant theme is throwing off and casting off personal identity, yeah. you know, for the betterment of the collective. There's different dialects even just in the United States. Dude That's walks true. out to me. He's like, how, he's like, how do y'all? I'm pretty sure he's from sure. Texas or like yeah. somewhere in the South. You when, use specific when the, language, you can kind of tell yeah. where somebody's from. Mm-hmm. Like the whole soda, pop, and coke debacle. Yeah. Um, well, shoot, if you when ever the, met somebody from the UK, they're like, oh, I can tell you know, you're from Essex or you're from wherever based on your, your, your accent. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's your background. That's what makes you who right. you are. And that's right. what they want to get rid of. Yeah. yeah. These uh, next, we're going to add one and two together. Because they kind of fall in line. Okay. So number two is guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity, 
And number one is the, I think the big one here, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. So they're both about reproduction, population control, um, make sure everything is relatively good with the earth. Like it yeah. says, number 10, right? Leave room for nature, all that type of stuff. So nature is here again. Um, you kind of touched on the diversity piece where you were kind of saying that it's not just like, um, you know, like your skin color or your hair color or like anything like that. It's also just about like ensuring that you have enough diversity in your gene pool to continue your population. We, we kind of talked about it with um, the Zach attack episode, how it's possible that Bigfoot running around, there's only so many of them because they don't have enough diversity in their gene pool and they're dying off. Um, so that's what they're trying to avoid, but then they're also trying to make sure it doesn't get out of control with the 500 million. Um, do you think these two things, because there's two ideas behind these, do you think the 500 million is like, okay, there's a huge catastrophic event, now humanity's reset, keep it under 500 million, or do you think it's hey, at some point, we're going to knock everything down to 500 million. So I'll put it this way. I'm going to, so we've been going backwards when we're going yeah. these, right? So I'm going to flip it for these last two. So if okay. you give somebody the instruction to maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature, and then the next instruction you give them is to guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Eugenically, you want fit human beings because fit human beings last. Fit human beings make better decisions. Fit human beings do better things, okay? Just in general, right? Think of like the, but, uh, the ancient Spartans, how like when a kid sure. was born, right. if it was like deformed, they cast it off a cliff. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, you know, during that time, you know, when you had to worry about where your next meal was coming from, potentially, mm -hmm. or you worried about all the other things that ancient man was worried about, unfortunately, having a child that has some sort of deformity or special need is a burden, right? And yep. But again, that's that's history. But yes, when you're talking about these two things, right? It's saying to guide reproduction wisely. So if you're guiding reproduction wisely, talking about and looking at it through the, the the lens of diversity. When you have less people, you have to be very careful about how you are reproducing, okay? Because when you have a smaller population, you just inherently have a smaller gene pool, okay? So you have less mm -hmm. people to choose from to ensure that diversity so that when you are reproducing, you're not having children that ha are too closely related and do have some sort of, you know, deformity or whatever, right? So guide reproduction wisely, keeping in mind that you have a smaller population of people who can reproduce with one another, you do have to guide that reproduction wisely. You have to look at, you're going to have to examine, you know, you meet Sally on the street, you like her, you guys decide to start a family together, you need to go get tested to make sure that you guys aren't related too closely to where you can have, when you have kids, that it's a problem, right? Yeah, so you have for to sure. guide guiding reproduction wisely to ensure to improving fitness and diversity, right? You're focused more on we have a smaller gene pool. We need to ensure that the diversity of this gene pool remains diverse, right? Not to be redundant, but so you that requires more attention and more energy put into ensuring that your gene pool remains diverse. And so to me, that's kind of how I view those two. When you look at it, I see them as instructions because that's what these are technically meant to be. As you say, mm -hmm. you do this, here's how. That's kind of how I view that. Yep. 
Yeah, we we did do them backwards. Um, mm-hmm. They're written obviously from number one to number ten. Yeah, and that's not um, to say that these. I mean, again, I mean, we have been saying that everything is, and it is true that everything is made. The decisions are made to do and say things in a certain way on purpose. So perhaps correct. you know what I mean. But you know, to me, like flipping it, it makes the most sense when you say that in that regard. Yep. Yep. And and two, right? When we talked about, we're going to tie back into you know when we we, we look now we can kind of shift back into who Mr. Christian was and some of his thought processes were, right? Mm-hmm. That when you're talking about guiding reproduction, talking about just some of the thought processes that go into uh, these, when you look at them through the lens of eugenics and the ideal human being, it can also have, you know, racial undertones. You know what I mean? Um, because to, to the Nazis, the the perfect Aryan human being was was not somebody who wasn't white or blonde or blue-eyed right in this very Mm -hmm. skewed and racist total terrible way to look at at human beings right that's kind of what they were looking at right and how they were looking at it um Mm -hmm. but anyway so when you look at kind of who rc christian was there's a lot of speculation when um this happened, meaning this happened, meaning the monument went up. There was magazine articles written about it. And of course they speculated like who he was. There's been journalists who speculated about who he was. There was a rumor, I guess at one point in um, this magazine that he was like a Texas oil baron, just like bored and looking for a way to spend his money essentially. Um, There's but, way too many things connected for him to be a random oil bearer. Right. right. And then <laughs> or oil but, baron. Um, Wyatt Martin, the, the bank president, basically put that rumor to rest saying, look, like, I'm not going to say who he was, but I'm telling you, he's not, you know, a Texas oil baron just looking to blow however much money on this arbitrarily without any sort of rhyme or reason other than he's bored, right? Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. he just basically disabused everybody of that that notion that was, you know, put forth. But... um. I want to jump in here on a uh, documentary that was done in 2010 called uh, Dark Clouds Over Alberton. Did you happen to come across that when you were doing research? I did not, no. Okay, so uh, the documentary obviously was done on uh, the Georgia Guidestones. And one of the things that happened in this documentary is um, Mr. Martin kind of gave up the address of somebody, the person who potentially is R.C. Christian, okay? Um, and it, it linked back um, to an, an address in Dodge City, Iowa, okay? And a person named Herbert H. Kirsten, okay? And uh, that person, Herbert H. Kirsten, uh, was a doctor, was somebody who, uh, in his obituary, was identified ironically as an avid bridge player, former recreational pilot, uh, conservationist, and then somebody who is involved in environmental and world population issues. So right off the bat, what do you see? Uh, I see a lot of things connecting to the 10 things on the uh, uh, Georgia Guidestones. Uh, it kind of all relates. Exactly. So... Right, so this this obituary that um, was found in 2005 in the Des Moines Register, again, like I said, uh, was an obituary for somebody named Herbert H. Christen, 
um, or Kirsten, excuse me. Mm. It's a little bit strange to have in somebody's obituary that they were an avid bridge player and then to follow it up with that they you know, were focused on world population issues, right? So to me, those are, again, not uh, irrevocable evidence to say that this person is Mr. Mm-hmm. Christian, okay? And again, you have the similarity between the name Kirsten and the name Christian, right? Which is, you know, could be coincidental, coincidental, you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, this, I, you know, this, this obituary has a lot of similarities to this person, you know? So if furthermore, uh, this obituary led to discovering another person named Robert Merriman. Did you find out uh, when you were looking stuff up, did you find anything on Robert Merriman? I did not. So a lot of my, so this looking up, um, Christian era, the people who like tried to do it, uh, it led me down a path of just Rosicrucians. And then I just went super deep into that and like Freemasonry. So I actually never got to like the actual people. So this is new to me as well. Gotcha. So I'm just kind of, kind of read to you some of the notes that I took, right? So Robert Merriman was the treasurer for a large publishing company, uh, that purchased the, uh, Fort Dodge, Iowa Messenger, which is a newspaper, okay? And he served as that paper's general manager until the late 70s, which ironically is when the Georgia Guidestones were commissioned in 1979, the late 70s, right? Yep. Um, And online, you can find uh, a lot of people speculating or making claims that Mr. Merriman and Mr. Kirsten were friends. They're both from Iowa, right? There's a lot of people in Iowa that don't know each other. But again, but um, you can't find any sort of actual like on paper links like saying like, you know, Robert Merriman and Herbert Christian did this together, you know, and are friends or whatever. But Something else that sort of um, throws weight into the evidence that uh, Mr. Kirsten is indeed somebody uh, who potentially could be R.C. Christian. Um, In the 1990s, a columnist that wrote for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, his name is James Driscoll, received a letter in the mail that came from somebody who identified themselves as an Iowa physician named Herbert H. Kirsten. Okay, Um, And this ties into some of the eugenic some of the um, you know overtones of racism that can exist when you start looking at what eugenics can mean. Um, that the later the letter expressed support for David Duke. You ever heard of David Duke? No. Okay, so you're David teaching me Duke, a lot of stuff today, Gresham. So David Duke is is somebody who is openly racist. He is somebody um, that uh, he was a leader. Uh, I think they called him Grand Dragons, right? Uh, in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, oh, yes. I know David okay. Duke is now. Yes. Right. Uh, I know that several years back, he kind of got brought into the the mainstream media again because of a certain president. Um, but anyway, so essentially he was expressing that a lot of good Americans had views that were in line with David Duke and that it was unfortunate that the put forth politicians that are okay to support don't share some of those same ideals, right? So, um, and the rest of the letter essentially uh, supported limiting immigration into the United States, stating that the United States should only help other countries help themselves, but should not carry the burden of the world, which, I mean, that sentence specifically I do agree with, you know, the United Mm -hmm. States should not carry the burden of the world. Um, But, uh, 
to me, when you look at all of that and these statements that this letter was making from somebody whose name is Herbert H. Kirsten, um, the obituary, like there's, you know, this, this evidence that I guess you call it evidence that this, you know, it lends credence to him actually being R.C. Christian, right? But here's something else to me that is, is, is more than just coincidental when you look at, you're tying these two people together, Robert, Robert Marion, Herbert Kirsten, okay? There was a publication put out by a small publisher in Iowa called Common Sense Renewed. So who wrote Common Sense, the original? Drawn a blank. Tell us all. Founding Father. Okay. Yes. Uh, Founding Father. Thomas uh, Paine. Yep. We've already mentioned him before, right? So Thomas mm-hmm. Paine, for people who don't know, was um, very openly against religion, very openly against organized religion, okay? Um, was very much a fan of free speech and not just in like the, you know, oh, America, free speech, like, you know, sort of way, you know, that people tend to, for some reason, throw like negative connotation towards, which is stupid, Um, Mm -hmm. but wrote specifically about how um, free speech allows for the pursuit of truth and that when you're limiting other people's speech, you're actually limiting their identity, which we've also had conversations about in this podcast episode, right? For sure. The publication Common Sense Renewed was put out by the publisher, person that worked for, was Robert Merriman. So again, here's a tie to um, these ideals of these these Rosicrucian ideals, the the link between Robert Merriman and potentially um, Herbert H. Kirsten, having put a publication out together called Common Sense Renewed. Um, and if you look on the Georgia Guidestones, what's one of the things that it talks about, right? is it talks about ushering in an enduring age of reason, right? And again, Age of Reason is another pamphlet or book, right, that Thomas Paine wrote. And that book was about uh, essentially an overt attack on organized religion in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, But that publication, right, while I said speculated was put out and like commissioned by Kirsten and then the publisher had ties to Robert Merriman, the name that went on that publication, Common Sense Renewed, was Robert Christian. Wow. So you see that name again being used, right, in another way. In a publication that was put out, Common Sense Renewed, from a publisher that had links to Robert Merriman, who was a publisher who owned a publishing company, who owned a newspaper in Iowa, right? And then you have Herbert H. Kirsten who potentially was this person that showed up there in Georgia in 1979 under the pseudonym Robert Christian, right? So could have added the C middle initial, right? Because I've never, I have not seen anything online about what C stands for, right? So Robert C. Christian, R.C. Christian, specifically, have, have you seen anything about what C stands for? No, the only the only connection is that R.C. is just the... Um, Rose, Rose Cross? Rose Rosicrucian symbol. Right. So maybe it just wanted to be RC Christian to designate it. Yeah, for sure. But to me, like this is all circumstantial evidence, but very coincidental and, you know, to me bordering on not coincidental that the fact that that's put out by Robert Christian 
just throws a lot of weight. And the speculation is that Merriman and Kirsten teamed up to write that book and build the guide stones together, essentially. So that's insane. So we've so many things are just tied together. Um, got the Rosicrucians in the 1600s, 500 million population in the 1600s. You got all these three people communicating with each other, talking about eugenics. All happen to be Iowa. Um, wow. There's too yeah. many things connected for it to not be a coincidence. Yeah, and something that Thomas Paine also wrote about and going back to some of these um, ancient undertones that uh, you know Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry have is he said that Freemasonry is the remains of the religion of the Druids. And the religion of the Druids is the same as the ancient Egyptians, right? And he goes on to talk about how, you know, Egyptian priests were scientists, um, you know, that they taught science, um, you know, all these different things, you know, hinting at the mysticism of the ancient Egyptians, of the Druids. You know, when you're combining mysticism and religion, you are 100% tying in a lot of the thought processes and beliefs of groups like the Rosicrucians. And Thomas Paine, rumored to be a part of the Rosicrucians. Other people that you may recognize their names from, you know, that have links to the Rosicrucians and Freemasons are Benjamin Franklin, uh, mm-hmm. Sir Francis Bacon, you know, some of these people that are well-known throughout history and specifically for their, I guess you could say, ideological and philosophical thought. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So while there is no, like, definitive proof on who R.C. Christian was, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence, you know, from other places that kind of points a direction at that. You know, in summarizing, you know, the... Him showing up using the name Robert Christian, the letter that this guy, you know, from uh, the Florida, the Florida newspaper got, you know, supporting some of these ideals that you you can look through the same lens that you can look at the the guidestones from. Um, this person who you know owned this this publishing company that put out this publication, um, you know, and then potentially knew Herbert H. Kirsten. Um, the name that the publication came out of, Robert Christian, you know, there's just all this circumstantial evidence that to me is, you know, bordering on this can't be just coincidence. And again, I can't prove this. And what I'm saying is just 100%, you know, my thoughts and opinions on what, you know, Mm -hmm. I've heard, what I've listened to, what I've seen, all these things about this. But, um, you know, when you start to consider the source, and know what I mean the source, I mean like this, whomever this man was that commissioned this put up, and you start looking at all of the meaning that goes behind, you know, this name and what's on these guidestones mm-hmm. and some of the other overarching themes and um, you know, this concept of one world government, you know, think of, you know, a lot of the symbols and the symbolisms that we have in our country specifically, you know, that tie into new world order, right? What is on the dollar bill? It's got a whole bunch of like Freemason type stuff and like the pyramid eye and it's a lot of symbolism. Right. So yeah, that eye, the, the all seeing eye, right. Mm -hmm. Um, there is, I have wrote the name down for what the, the eye of Providence is what that eye is called. Right. So you have, um, the words novus ordo seclorum, which mean in Latin new world order. Right. Um, you know, you, you have, uh, the phrase e pluribus unum, which means out of many one, right. Mm -hmm. Which again, you know, talking about a, a collective, 
in unity as one, right? Um, so there's there's a lot of things that have assigned meaning that can that have some duplicity um, and, and elasticity to to kind of look at them from different angles. You know what I mean? And there is there's heavy you know the Masonic square and compass. You can find that on a lot of different things in our country. If you go look, if you've ever looked at a Masonic temple, and I've again, I'm not a Mason, but I've had people who are Masons tell me that like, mm-hmm. there's symbolism on these buildings that you're not going to recognize unless you are a Mason. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there are things on, you know, and uh, dude, this is going to sound weird and, and people may not believe me, but I swear to God, driving home from work today, I was behind somebody on the highway and they had the Masonic compass and square, like a decal on their car, like the Freemason thing. And I was Mm -hmm. like, dude, that's so strange. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm about to talk about this later. Right. You know what I mean? (laughs) These little strange synchronicities that you run into, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, am I looking for it subconsciously because I've been spent, I've spent the past, you know, week researching all this stuff, but I haven't noticed it. If I hadn't, I don't know. You know what I mean? These are these these questions you ask yourself when you're doing shit like this, you know, but it is, um, it is interesting how the brain can like jump to those things. You see things more often, uh, reading the book that you and I are both reading from the author. And he's talked, he did talk about like, uh, the Cooper's colors and stuff like that. And like mm-hmm. your different levels. Yeah. When I, when I read that part and then I was like driving later, I was like, wait a minute, am I being followed? <laughs> this is went down this whole thing. It's like, there's no reason for me to be followed. This doesn't make any sense, but sure. it's interesting how, because you just start subconsciously thinking of the things that you're in, invested in and investigating. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't take a lot to see a lot of the you know the Masonic symbolism that is in mm-hmm. the United States's culture. You know, um, yeah. And then there's there are you know and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole super deep, but like there's a lot of um, you know secret society stuff that goes into you know leaders in our country. You know, you look at organizations like the Skull and Bones, and you look at people. Mm-hmm. How many people who were presidents that were a member part of this organization? You know what I mean? Um, and President, you know, George H.W. Bush was a member of the Skull and Bones. And there's a lot of other very, very prominent people that were members of the Skull and Bones or other secret organizations, right? Like participating in the events known Bohemian Grove. A lot of the really creepy shit that you can find at like Denver Airport. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the Freemason symbol is in there. It is. If you, you know, when you look at, again, that's that commissioning stone at the airport, what's it made out of? It's made out of granite, granite, right? And it says, you know, the New World Airport Commission, when there is no such thing as a New World Airport Commission, right? Yep. And then you have all this creepy stuff. Like, I just went and visited um, family in, in Colorado and flew into Denver Airport. And it is. It's it's crazy how long it t- Once you, like, turn into the property, it still takes you, like, 30 minutes to get to the actual terminal. It's this massive mm-hmm. amount of land, you know, and, and where I live, I live next to some big cities in California and it's not that hard. It takes just a matter of a few minutes to get to these terminals, you know, even if yeah. you're going to like San Francisco airport or LA airport, right. It doesn't take you that long. And again, like, you know, like there's more wide open land in Colorado than there is in California and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? Like, which, you know, is, is logical, but there it is. Lucifer, right. <laughs> that crazy ass big horse, you know, that, yeah. With the I've glowing heard, red eye, glowing red <laughs> eyes, you know, like oh, that's just the Denver Bronco. You know what I mean? Like it's the, but dude, why? First off, 
if it was a representation of the Denver Bronco and you're trying to you know associate it to the football team, why does it need to be creepy? Why does it need to look like a horse out of the Book of Revelation and so you could see yeah. his ribs? You know, the guy who um, who designed and built it died before it could get put up. The horse, something came off the horse and yeah, cut killed his him. leg. Yeah. Like, you know, so like all these, again, like that's just creepy in and of itself. Mm -hmm. That's pretty terrifying when you consider like this statue killed somebody and there it is. It's creepy. You know, it's not like this. It's not like a reproduction of the Venus de Milo. You know what I mean? And it just fell over and land on somebody, which would be terrible. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's a creepy picture of a horse, you know, and, and horses have a, an Armageddon revelation, you know, tie, you know what I mean? Like behold a pale horse, you know, all these Mm -hmm. things that you can assign you can you know and again right you can assign your own thought processes and, and the meaning you assign to these things is dependent upon you right and you we can just yeah. say yeah, maybe that was the intention all along this is a De- the denver bronco right or maybe it is supposed to be some sort of you know negative dark connotation to it you know and then you can the, look at everything individually and like, oh, it's a Denver Bronco thing. Or, yeah, it's made out of granite, so it looks pretty and it lasts. And, right. oh, yeah, of course, like, the Freemasons would be interested in it because they build things. Like, but if you look at stuff together, that's when it starts to, like, come, like, all full circle. Kind of like what we just did with uh, uh, R.C. Christian and how it all connects with all that type of stuff. This is kind of the same thing here, like... Um, you said you've been in the Denver airport. I've been in it before too. And I was traveling through for like a TDY or something. And I remember, I remember when I was walking again, like you said, super long hallways and all this type of stuff. And I was like walking and I walked past a, like a painting and the painting is like a, like a soldier with like a gas mask. And he's like shooting children. And there's like a fire in the background. Like it's a very weird painting to be in a hallway of an international airport. It is like, like who wants to go to know you're going to be flying in a metal tube across the country or around the world. And yeah, some really scary painting. That's just going to put you in this like shitty mindset. You know, you have this soldier in a gas mask. There's like gas going around. He's got Mm -hmm. his big ass sword. There's dead kids on the ground in this painting. Mm -hmm. And then, and and it's like, um, it's a it's like a mural in different pieces around. It's not like one big continuous mural. Like yeah, yeah. You know, there's another scene right where like all everybody, all these kids are like gathered around. You know this this flower thing. You know, mm-hmm. and you know it. The, honestly, the first time I saw that painting, it made me think of. Um, like a song I heard in church one time, like talking about like, you know, like kids and like Jesus and stuff like that. And like, so like, it's not unheard of for like uh, ideology or like religion to use like children and the innocence of children to like project, project a narrative. You know what I mean? So that's fairly common. But even though that painting is like that one specifically of all the kids like gathered around this like, you know, really beautiful, colorful flower or whatever, you know, it looks, I guess on the surface, like you could say like, oh, that's positive looking painting, but like it's, it's unsettling to look at too, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And then not even considering the other paintings that are a part of this one piece of art, right? Even though it's dispersed around different parts of the airport, it's Mm -hmm. just like, it does that 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 um those paintings tell a story you know what i mean it tells the yeah. story of like uh, you know 
the devastation and then the rebuilding and then the coming together. You know what I mean? And there is, there's the destruction. The old world has passed away and the new world has come out. You know what I mean? And you now come together in a coalition and there's no more individuality and you're going to do things for the better man. Exactly, man. And to me, like it ties into that whole thing again, you can tie it into the Rosicrucian concept of the Mm -hmm. 13,000 year reset, right? Yeah, so there's the the Rosicrucians believe, or one of their main things is there's a 13,000-year like reset, where every 13,000 years, um, something happens, either man-made or catastrophic, and it just resets like humanity and all this type of stuff. And that's what they're getting ready for, was to um, have something for the next section of humanity that would sp- sprout after the 13,000 reset. Um would have something to go off of and to build off of and things like that. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, we did a poll, obviously, like what you guys wanted to hear about stuff. And it was came oh, out yeah. to ancient civilizations. Yeah. Um, and this actually kind of ties into the 13,000 year reset. Um, so it'd be kind of like there was maybe an ancient civilization, you know, 26,000 years ago and then they existed and then there was a reset and there was another one 13,000 years ago and then they, and then it was reset there too. So, um, we're definitely going to do a lot of research into that and go more in depth, but it's just interesting how this, a lot of these things, they fit together and a lot of the concepts we're going to go over kind of just connect and fit together. And um, I'm excited for the for future episodes because of it. Absolutely. Me too. And I'm glad you brought that up and I may put my foot in my mouth here for a second. So, <laughs> so call me yeah. out or somebody correct me. But um you know, we talk about that poll and how we wanted to talk about the uh, potential of an ancient civilization that was as advanced or more advanced or whatever as mm-hmm. we are having wiped off the face of the earth and now this rebuild, right? Um, yeah. One of the one of the people who is a um, great mouthpiece and proponent of that concept is Graham Hancock, and you can sit here and not you, but proverbially, you can sit here and try to tell me all this crap about you know uh, Graham Hancock, you know, and how he's a kook or whatever. And I'm not saying you know. Everything the man says is right, but he asked some interesting questions and, you know, and I really appreciate his work because he looks at things from a different way, right? One of the things that he talks about all the time with uh, Randall Carlson, who is a geologist, because Randall, or excuse me, Graham Hancock is not an archaeologist, he's not an anthropologist, he's a journalist, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and he does he does take some liberties with some of the things he says and speculates on, on some, you know, archaeological evidence of other people, but... The yeah. thing they talk about it being the Younger Dryas event, okay, um, I want to say it was like 11,700 years ago or thereabouts, which is close enough. I mean, I get it. Like that's the thir- there's a 1,300-year difference between – or yeah, 1,300-year difference between 11,700 and 13,000 years ago. But those are very mm-hmm. close together, right, on the, the grand scale of the, the life of the yeah. earth. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's not saying like every 13,000 years exactly this is going to happen thereabouts right it's going to happen so this you know and once again this is just me and i'm tying again a bunch of shit together you know and (laughs) but the younger dryas event is what he says um and and postulates that you know it's this cataclysmic event where all of these meteorites crashed into the north american ice shelf and caused this massive um melting of all of this uh this glacial water right and it caused this flood right which you know 
every culture, every civilization has, has a flood its myth, own flood myth, and all this stuff. And, yep. Right. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence because there's no way. And, and Randall Carlson is where like a lot of this gets tied in together scientifically. And there are other geologists who contest with what he says, and they you know go back and forth, and that's totally cool because that's the way it's supposed to be. That's how science exists right Mm -hmm. um but you know that's again like what you're talking about it's interesting i just put it that way it's interesting to think about and try to make those comparisons about you know something like the younger dryas impact event and then what the rosicrucians say about thirteen thousand year cycles for resetting of humanity right just those are you know again loosely can be looked at together you know what i mean so yeah something something to something interesting to kind of wrap this conversation up and tie it into other things. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a good, good time to kind of tie it all up. Um, we can go way more. Oh yes. (laughs) But before we get to that, we can go way more into these Georgia Guidestones. Uh, we didn't get into like the destruction of them, uh, why they were blown up, all this type of stuff. So we're definitely going to have to hit this with a part two. Um, we may get some better insight into that investigation and stuff, um, which would be kind of cool. Potential of having somebody on who was, um, you know, a part of that investigation that took place when they were blown up because they did not ever arrest anybody. And you can go find the video of that blowing up. Um, but, but so I'll just say this, there's a potential for a part two to this episode. Um, and that would be amazing if we could have him on. Hopefully that happens. So get your hopes yes. up, you know, fire fans, my hopes are <laughs> up. Um, but if that happens, we'll definitely let you know if we get a confirmation that he'll come on the episode with us, that would be amazing. But, uh, yeah, uh, let's talk about our sponsor here. Uh, Red yeah. Clover coffee, as you guys know, as, uh, we are proud to have them as our sponsor. Um, again, you know, I have uh, here their peanut burt er, right? Because the A10 burt, right? And then uh, this funny. one, it, this one is really good. Um, I've said it before. Blueberry Invasion is awesome. Um, Rocking the hat. It's a dope hat. Um, I got some more coffee coming here pretty soon. And um, I cannot recommend them enough, you guys, genuinely. Um, and don't be a pansy, dude. Buy buy yourself a coffee grinder and get whole bean and make it. It tastes so much better uh, yeah, when you're fresh. grinding your own coffee beans. Absolutely. But their coffee is delicious. Um, they are very – go check them out, honestly. Go to redclovercoffee.com or go check out their Instagram page. You can find them through our Instagram page if you've already followed us but haven't followed them. If you go to mm-hmm. our story highlights, there's one that says um, uh, coffee code. Click it. You can go right to their um, their profile page. They donate to charity. They are very, very, very kind company. Um, Veteran-owned. Cannot recommend them enough. Um, yep. There's some very cool stuff that you can check out. You can get 10% off with our code. Came with FIRE at checkout. Highly recommend doing that because who wants to pay full price? Um, but my favorite for sure is uh, this peanut butter, right? Peanut butter bandit or blueberry invasion. So Red Clover Coffee, thank you to you guys for sponsoring our podcast and go check them out and get some coffee at a 10% discount price. Yeah, for sure. Um, just want to say thanks to everyone listening. Um, make sure you please like, comment, subscribe, all those generic things we got to kick out there. Um, it's free for you to do and super quick and easy for you to do, but it really helps us out a lot. So if you could please share, like, comment, subscribe. Um, if you're looking to get some coffee, crying. If you're looking to get some uh, coffee, please use the code that also helps us out a lot. It bolsters our um, 
publicity. So it's pretty nice. Sure. Great conversation, brother. Like you yeah, said, yeah. please like, comment, like, comment, subscribe. Head over to our Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And uh, good night, Fire fans. Thank you for listening.